Welcome to another conversation between myself, Mark Vernon, and Rupert Sheldrake. Hi there, Rupert. Hello, Mark. Rupert, I was wondering about talking through organised religion, um, because it feels to me that um, in a lot of um, spiritual questing, um, organised religion is... Um, not quite taboo, but certainly is seen as detrimental to the personal quest. And of course, we live in a country, the UK, where organised religion is certainly in the form of the Church of England um, in decline. And, you know, organised religion around the world um, is often linked to all manner of ills and conflict and trouble. Um, maybe there's something about the ideal of the free individual that so powerfully dominates in the West linked into all this as well. Um, but I f it feels like, um, well, let me put it a bit more personally as well, because this is something which, which we both um, uh, have a personal connection to. You know, I used to be a priest in the Church of England. And I remember the night before I was ordained, I went to see the bishop who was going to ordain me, um, who was uh, David Jenkins back in the 1980s, was a sort of famous even Bishop of Durham, um, a time when bishops um, could make headlines quite easily in England. And um, he, I said to him, you know, I don't know if I should be ordained. I, I feel very ambivalent about this. I don't even know what I feel about the church. Um, and he said two things to me. One thing he said was, don't take yourself so seriously, um, which is a phrase that's resonated with me because the great risk of the personal quest is that you end up taking yourself very seriously when a lot of spiritual teaching would be to get over yourself. Um, you can get caught up in yourself with the personal quest. So that's a thing that I've re wrestled with. But the other thing he said was, um, um, you know, look, when it comes to the church, I agree, you can't live with it, but you also can't live without it. Because for good and ill, these institutions, organisations are the carriers of the wisdom of the tradition. They're the means through which things get transmitted and, you know, keep keep these things alive, which is really important too, because these spiritual traditions aren't just things you can read from a book, but they have to be known as felt lived experiences with the wisdom having that kind of flexibility to meet the moment that's appropriate rather than just as if it's a code or a kind of formula um so look that's all to say this is you know something which I felt very personally and 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 continue to wrestle with you know I do feel very mixed about the church um whereas I know I think you feel a bit differently from that yes well I spent quite a long time on a kind of so spiritual quest mode you know were through psychedelics through meditation which i did first with transcendental meditation then when i was living in india in hyderabad i had a sufi teacher um and did sufi practices um and yes yeah, so i mean i i tried sort of various spiritual practices but i personally find organized religion um, has, you know, an enormously important role to play. 
I'm sort of pro-organized religion on the whole. I know, as you say, it's kind of taboo. People, lots of people say, you know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And, you know, I'm Christian, but I, I'm not in favor of organized religion or the church or something like that. So it's generally uh, considered taboo and has a very negative rating in most people's minds. Um, sometimes that's coupled with um, a kind of historical sort of thing about the Inquisition, imperialism, and so forth, um, um, which shows that Christianity and other religions can be abused for purposes of power, tribal loyalty, etc., easily hijacked. Uh, that's undoubtedly true. Of course, it's also true that atheism uh, can be an immensely destructive force when it's politically powerful, as shown by the Soviet Union under Stalin, um, China under Mao Zedong, and Cambodia under Pol Pot. I mean, these were some of the most murderous regimes in history. It makes the Inquisition look like a vicar's tea party. Um, the, um, these are incredibly destructive, and the French Revolution, the Reign of Terror, uh, an anti-Christian movement of extreme viciousness, um, so no one comes out with any credit if you're looking at institutions of any kind. Um, but it, at least in Britain at the moment, organized Christianity is so weak. I mean, only about 5% of the population go to church regularly and a majority say that they're not Christian or have no religion. Um, so it's not exactly um, in a very powerful position where it's uh, dominating everyone's lives with rigid dogma. It, what's dominating people's lives with rigid dogma at the moment is science, which has become a very dogmatic force in our society. Um, so I think a lot of these historical concerns you know, are not terribly relevant today. What is relevant, I think, is uh, the role of local communities uh, churches as local communities. I've just recently read a book by Alison Milbank called The Once and Future Parish about the role of parish churches. And here in Britain, every village and community has a parish church at the centre, and it used to be the centre of the community. And in many places, it still is, because in many villages in England, you know, the pub has gone, the school has gone, um, uh, almost everything, the only thing left is the parish church. And in some parishes, there's now one priest for 12 villages or even more. And the churches may have one service a month, mostly attended by you know, quite elderly people, a handful of elderly people. So there's a real threat to the survival of parishes in Britain. Um, some managerialist bishops want to sort of get rid of them and think they're not cost effective and so on. Um, but others like Alison think that these are immensely precious. They're the centers of a community where people have been married and christened and buried for centuries in many cases. Um, and if that goes, the, and if they're sold off and become second homes for interior designers from London or, or something, this would not enrich the community. It would not enhance local life. Uh, it would impoverish it greatly. So I think there's a, a, there's a, a sense in which, unless we value this tradition, uh, we'll lose it. It's a use it or lose it situation, not a struggle against overwhelming power and dogmatism as some 
atheists like to think of it, but uh, something where there's a very valuable tradition of beautiful buildings, dignified liturgy, wonderful music in our cathedrals, um, holy places, um, which I think are valuable for all of us, even for people who never go there. It's the very fact they exist uh, is important, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely get that as someone who um, is readily charmed by uh, a, particularly a rural parish church where the past mingles with the present and, um, you know, beautiful architecture that lifts the soul, not just serves some practical utilitarian function. Um, and then if you do hear some music, you know, in a great cathedral, you do feel um, transported to another world, um, which I guess to many of our ancestors was much more immediate. Um, whereas for now, um, it feels like an exception, not the rule. Um, so I, I, I do completely understand that. And, you know, we've talked about things like pilgrimage before, the value of sacred place, lighting candles, these kind of practices. And, um, you know, it it is very powerful to go to even a modest country parish church um, which maybe hasn't actually even had a service in it for quite some time um, and yet still feel the presence that exists there um, and so a building that holds that presence um, I, I completely get is you know immensely valuable and and and, and, and once lost um, is is very hard to replace because that presence is held because of the kind of accretion of, of generations of devotion and worship and recognition and so on. You know, you may have a, a, a sacred well um, or maybe the site of a saint's cave or some other link um, that keeps that thin place open um, to the spirit. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, there's something about the soul of the country that that is held in these places. Incidentally, um another little signal of how bad things have got in uh, the UK is um, there was recently some research out I saw that um, showed that whilst for nearly every other place on earth if you're religious it's good for your well-being um, that link is often made that a sort of spiritual sensibility seems, seems to be um, correlative, correlative to um, a sense of happiness even but certainly a sense of well-being um, apart from now in the UK, where being religious um, now seems to be, at least according to this one survey, who knows quite, but does seem to be detrimental to your well-being. And I guess it's because of this powerful sense now that if you're Christian, probably it's going to be Christian, um, you might well feel kind of cut off or alienated from the wider culture or, you know, maybe a bit cast adrift, not quite sure how to pursue this conviction anymore um yeah so you know i i i do understand the dire sense of things but maybe also to you know you, you talk there about sort of managerial bishops and i've met one or two and um i i wonder whether part of the trouble um is not just the wider society becoming uncoupled from church life um, and pursuing a very secular course um, but is because the church, too, has rather lost touch in its current manifestation with what would have been held in these older buildings, um, you know, and hence the move to man managerialism, the sort of obsession with numbers, um, you know, qu quantity over quality 
feels to me always to be a sign that the spirit and the soul is being lost touch with. And, um, you know, whilst if you ask any bishop direct, um, are you becoming secular? Of course, they would say no, but there does feel to be quite a secular spirit around and even in the churches that are doing well. And and I and it's it's a subtle business, though. I don't want just to sort of pick up easy sticks to bash the church, because I feel that um, one of the ways it can um, get sort of smuggled in is by very powerful moral concerns that churches now have. And even, you know, wanting to build community can take on a distinctly moral hue. You know, it's about fending for those that don't have so much or get left behind by the state in the local community with things like food banks. Um, and the difficulty is, is that clearly that is um, uh, a good concern to have. And churches as, as a sort of network of charitable activity does a lot of good. Um, so I'm not saying that that's not worthwhile, but it feels to me there's always a risk that that concern for the here and now and secular concerns, which are very powerful and, and demanding, answering to be met, um, nonetheless mean that people lose touch with the wider concerns. And so a kind of flatland spirit um, can spread through the church. Um, and then maybe there's a slight shadow side to this too, because I think... Christianity, church's relation to the state in the West anyway, has always been quite closely linked to um, churches saying to the state, look, you need us because we can do things that the state can't do, like looking after people, building civic concern and so on. Um, and, and so the difficulty is it's, that clearly is a good thing, but maybe particularly when the church feels stressed, it gets, um, uh, it sort of eclipses a, a more spiritual vitality um you know so that even clergy don't even quite know what that is again you know my sense is if you ask um you know a, a minister a priest you know do you value spiritual life of course they would say yes but whether there's really a felt and living sense of that dimension of existence um in their ministry uh, you know look this is purely anecdotal just my experience but i i put it this way you know if people are serious about their spiritual journey um going to a clergyman is probably not going to be high on their list of places to go um they're going to go to a you know a buddhist monk or they're going to go to a sufi source say um they may well you know look at christian mysticism and do pilgrimage and so on but i feel that that must be part of the problem that um the church is as a, a, a place of um, spiritual development, say, rather than just touching a sort of vague remembered sense of spirituality. Um, that feels like it's got lost and, and, and that's sort of somehow spread abroad as well. Um, so that people don't even think that the church organized religion has much to do with their spirituality and, and so might also be antithetical to it. Hmm. Well, I'm speaking personally. I'm, I make a practice of going to church wherever I am on, on Sundays, uh, usually to the morning service, sometimes to evensong or both. Um, and I find it really, um, helpful to do that. And, and especially when I go to village churches, there are often, you know, not many people. They're quite elderly. 
they don't all have the same point of view. And I'm sure if you quiz them in detail about how they understand the creed and so on, do you get a wide diversity of opinions? It's not as if everyone's got a uniform, a doctrinally orthodox view, I'm, and they're not all going there because they're totally committed to every doctrine of the Christian tradition. They're going because it's a community, you sing together, you have an uplift, inspiration, receive Holy Communion, if it's a communion service, you have a blessing. Um, and it's part of a, a week, the rhythm of the week. And I find starting the week with a blessing on a Sunday is a wonderful way of starting the week, much better than just reading depressing Sunday newspapers. Um, so I, I think part of it for people is, is simply not necessarily as part of a deep, personal spiritual quest that they take very seriously, but just part of the rhythm of life. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's a really important part of life, to giving a spiritual dimension to life and to community. Um, and I take your point about you wouldn't necessarily go and ask a priest for spiritual advice. I think this is partly because of, as a result of the Reformation here in Britain, um, we've lost what the Roman Church calls the religious. In the Roman Church, monks and nuns are called the religious. They live in religious orders. They're specialists in prayer and meditation and in leading dedicated spiritual lives. Whereas parish priests are called secular priests, not because they're secular in the modern sense of secular, but because they're to do with sort of ordinary everyday life, you know, births, marriages, deaths, uh, regular services, festivals in churches. Um, the, and you see this in, in very strikingly in India too, the temple priests, the Brahmins who learn the chants, the Sanskrit chants, who conduct the pujas in the temples, uh, are not people most people would go to to ask for spiritual advice. They're officials, they're temple officials who conduct the proper rituals in the proper way. Uh, if you want to go for spiritual advice, you go to a sadhu, a holy man, you know, who might be living in a cave in, in the Himalayas wearing orange robes. And uh, it's a different role. Um, and in the Roman Catholic Church before the Reformation, England was full of monks and nuns, uh, hermits, all sorts of people who, at St. Julian of Norwich, for example, in her cell in Norwich, where people would go and ask for her blessing. They weren't going to ask the parish priest, they were going to ask uh, Julian. And so I think that in, in Protestant countries, uh, too much uh, role is, is given to the, the priest, who's meant to be now both a kind of monk and spiritual leader and mystic, as well as an official uh, running regular services and keeping the whole system um, as a kind of official presiding over a, a regulated system. Um, so I think that's uh, expecting too much. Um, so I don't have a very high expectation of, uh, you know, of priests being you know, necessarily illuminated figures, who, but I do expect them to do a good job in taking a service according to the liturgy and, and, and being able to carry out a good wedding or a funeral, or, and that's their role for the most part. Um, and I'm glad they do it. I think we need these things. We need rites of passage. We need regular uplift and so on. And I think we'd be poorer without it. So I'm 
I myself think, I don't think that the whole of my spiritual life depends on a Sunday service in a parish church or choral evensong on a weekday in a cathedral. You know, I meditate, I pray every day at home, I fast during Lent, I you know, have a range of spiritual practices, uh, but I don't expect all of them to come through the church. Um, but I do think the church is very valuable because it gives us a dimension a social and community and local dimension to spiritual life. So people who are spiritual but not religious have the personal spirituality, but it's uncoupled from sacred place, from the sacred liturgical calendar, the festivals, the seasons, um, the local community. Um, and so I don't think it's either or. I think it's both and. Yeah, and no, I, 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 can, I can completely see that. And maybe this is a critique of the personal pursuit of spiritual life um, that is actually um, not just the cheap critique. You know, sometimes priests will stand up and say, you know, modern spirituality is very narcissistic. It's just about the individual and their well-being and uh, they don't care about the ethical implications and so on. I think that's actually cheap um, uh, and, and not accurate. But I, what I can see is that um, the much wider embodied practices pulse of the year of time and so on as you're saying um and the, the 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 business of being with others and feeling either consciously or not um that shared endeavor that is both in the present but also reaches back through time um you know that that speaks to a much fuller sense of our humanity um you know rather than being a, a sort of isolated individual pursuing um something i mean this is last night actually i um i went to a talk given by a tibetan monk and um you know he said many true things about meditation and um about uh suffering and um led us through a, a brief tongleng meditation you know where you breathe in difficulty and breathe out light or love um and it was very lovely to do in that moment and uh, you felt the truth of it but then he also told a bit about his personal story and he'd been a monk for many years and it included um, very extended retreats, like a four-year retreat at one point. And he talked about how in that four-year retreat, after about 10 days of it, he had a complete breakdown. Um, and for two years, he said, was in a sort of state of, of disarray. Um, you know, God knows what that was like. Um, again, it, it makes... Uh, deep psychotherapy look relatively mild by comparison um but it made me wonder you know what is it in that time that kept him going i presume it wasn't just his personal meditative practice um although presumably he had to sort of keep at that but presumably it was the rituals and the rites the pulse of the day all the what can look like quite extravagant paraphernalia of tibetan buddhism um that uh, linked him to a source um, I mean, I don't suppose a Tibetan put it, put it quite like this, but to a source that was greater than himself. Um, and, you know, so sometimes, you know, at, at talks like that, um, I, I do wonder what's not being talked about in this um, discussion of meditation. Um, and, you know, maybe even we, I don't know whether, because meditation, you know, as a, as a serious practice, um, has been around for quite a few years now, quite accessible for quite a few years, um, you know, a, a generation or two. 
Um, but I don't know whether there'll be a moment where people realise you need more than just the technique and more than just the discipline to do it once or twice a day, um, partly to sort of keep at it, um, but also because only then does it speak to the fullness of our humanity, which, of course, is transpersonal as well as just uh, individual and personal. Yes. The I mean, Tibetan meditation, of course, happens within a sort of larger social context, as you say. I mean, traditionally, there are lots of monasteries or were lots of monasteries in Tibet. There are still Tibetan monasteries. So it's not isolated individuals on an individualistic quest. They're part of a community and it's a fairly hierarchical community as well. Um, and there, you know, when I've been in, um, I was once working right on the Tibetan border of India in, in, um, Lahul Spiti province where it's culturally Tibetan. Um, and the monks there were very involved in the festivals, the seasonal festivals and, you know, the whole liturgical year. So it was all tied into the whole society and the community and the celebration of festivals and so on. It wasn't an individualist pursuit. And in India, too, the you know gurus who teach meditation are in ashrams, which are communities and um, there are whole networks of people and they're not separate from the whole temple system and the festivals they celebrate the festivals like everyone else and you know they visit the temples and um and sufis the mystical branch of islam uh, are in here in england they're sort of some of them are sort of it's like free floating mysticism but in i when i lived in hyderabad in india where the sufis there were and indeed throughout the islamic world are first and foremost Muslims, and this is a kind of mystical dimension, but they still go to prayers in the mosque on Fridays and, and, and at other times they still fast during Ramadan and uh, observe the festivals and the ceremonies. So I think what we've seen in the West with spiritual practices, things have been plucked from their actual religious setting and, and treated as free floating practices. Um, when actually in their natural context, in their native context, they're part of a, communi a community and a religious tradition. Um, so uh, I think that is, uh, that's why I think it's important to learn from these traditions. I'm, um, I've written two books on spiritual practices, um, as you know, science and spiritual practices and ways to go beyond and why they work. Both of them deal with seven different spiritual practices of which meditation is one, gratitude's another, rituals are another, singing and chanting another, something I learned a lot about through my wife, Joel Pass, who teaches singing and chanting. Um, um, so I think all of these are enormously enriching and important, but I think they have to be grounded in this community, in this tradition. And so um, I don't think going to church is enough or, or uh, alone enough. But I do think it's a really important part of this. And the tradition, especially of our great cathedrals and the wonderful music in them and the architecture they reflect, uh, the, the, the vision they reflect is hugely important. And also, of course, one of the traditional roles of Christianity is saving souls. Very unfashionable view today. Um, but actually, I think it has some relevance because one thing that's going on at the moment is uh, 
a much, much more discussion of a possible afterlife than we've had for many years. I mean, near-death experiences, uh, you know, connect, ways in which the end-of-life experiences, the passing over into the afterlife. Um, now, most people don't give it a second thought, but what if there really is an afterlife? What if when we die, we are in a kind of afterlife, which I think of as like a dream world from which we can't wake up? Um, everyone agrees that going to sleep is like, uh, going to, dying is like going to sleep, but I suppose atheists think it's like going to deep dreamless sleep from which you never wake up. But actually, real sleep, if we use that analogy, uh, involves dreams. And either all the time or some of the time when we're dead, we may be in a kind of dream world. And, and then it may really matter what happens if, you, if you've prayed to Christ and the saints, maybe they can help you in the afterlife. Uh, if you haven't prayed to them, maybe you wouldn't think of asking for their help or protection, you'd be quite lost. Um, in the Tibetan system, um, you know, people who are unprepared for it find themselves in a bardo, uh, which an intermediate zone, where, which is utterly confusing to them. They don't know what to do. But those who've practiced, monks have these like dream yoga practice, like lucid dreaming, so they can navigate through the bardo and uh, move into the light and be liberated through the light. Um, they're prepared for the afterlife. And a lot about traditional Christianity is preparing people for life after death. A lot in the modern church uh, doesn't emphasize this at all. You know, you see Christian posters saying, we believe in life before death, you know, trying to make it's about food banks and social justice and so on, which of course it is in part. Uh, but I think uh, the preparation for life after death is an important part of tra traditional religion. And I personally take it very seriously. I pray the Hail Mary every day. And the bottom line of the Hail Mary is pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Um, so I think preparing for death is, is, is really important. I mean, obviously it becomes more interesting as you get older, um, but anyone can die at any time, you know, and people do die young and, and so on. So it's relevant to everyone. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I too say, um, you know, prayers like the Lord's Prayer and so on, um, and um, returning to those phrases and um, partly as a, you know, as an opening, as a petition, um, but also as a, um, a kind of a mode of self-reflection where you realise how you are in relation to death or how you are relation in relation to, you know, divine or other forces and entities dynamics um that that repetition has, has got to be important um and it makes me think too that um you know part of the the difficulty um around organized religion um in the west um has, it is a theological question really um which is um you know what vision of christianity let's just sticking with christianity um do lives in in that that church um and um i i'm very i remember reading it's quite a well-known phrase by the catholic theologian karl rana who makes this remark um that the the christian of tomorrow will be a mystical christian or will not be a christian at all um i.e the mystical inner um esoteric if you like um 
supernatural, although, you know, we've said before that's a tricky word, but nonetheless, um, that element um, is both inviting, you know, it's why, as you're saying, you know, interest in the afterlife um, never quite dies and maybe is resurgent now, um, but also a kind of cultural longing. It's it's quite common to to read literary figures saying, you know, they don't believe in God, but they miss him. Um, or or going on about how important Christianity is to the fabric of our civilization, um, and yet not quite knowing how to reconnect or remake that Christianity, because I'm sure it's not a nostalgic activity that's required. Um, it's about understanding how it can live today. Um, so that that's a theological question. And I and I feel that, you know, again, the church has got very confused about this at a theological level, not just a moral level. Um, and maybe this relates to what you're saying there about how in India the priests do one thing and the sadhus do another. Um, that's really important because um, it feels like a lot of church ritual has a kind of implicitly dualistic theology at its heart. Um, that's like you sort of helpless before God and needing to somehow say the right kind of affirmation to receive that salvation of your soul. Um, you know, and, and it's administered through hierarchies in a rather pejorative sense. Um, you know, the priest, as it were, has the power to give the blessing and you are rather passive before it, it, it you know, or, or you're supposed to sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, all your devotion is supposed to go towards a figure like Christ, who is somehow um, a perfection of humanity that you can never hope to um, to know of your own account, because certainly since the Reformation, you know, your inner life is utterly depraved or um, as Calvin put it, or as Luther, you know, has similar expressions, you know, we can't trust anything of ourselves and so we have to just trust the scripture or trust something that's outside of us anyway whether it be a church authority or a, a holy book and and i sometimes feel like the rebellion against organized religion um is um, a rebellion against that kind of theology and we need to recover a, a new kind of christianity which actually is old um we've talked a bit about wild christianity and figures like paul kings north and martin shaw and others who are becoming orthodox christians and figures like david bentley hart who speak from that tradition and even actually you know in the church of england rowan williams deeply influenced by that tradition and it feels to me there that the starting point is not you're a sinner at risk of hell in the afterlife to go back to your point um but that you're an image of God, you're a portion of God. Um, the divine is within you. And the invitation in this life is to know that more and more fully. That's the calling in this life. As as church fathers put it, we're made created to become uncreated. Um, a notion of good news that's, you know, almost too much to say, but not because it's terrifying, but because it's um, it's too tremendous. Um, the, the, the promise there, the potential there is um, is so extraordinary. Um, even if you're deeply spiritually inclined, you hardly dare say such a thing. And and yet, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, I've written about this in books as well. I felt this was the significance of the person of Jesus in history, which I wrote about in one book. And then, you know, Dante's Divine Comedy as well, which I've written about that I feel is what Dante finally realizes is as he puts it, you know, his 
desire and will is now spinning like a perfect wheel with the with the love that moves the sun and the other stars and it's the realization that all that he hoped for and yearned for and fought against and um, struggled with in his own life was always the pull back to god which was his source and origin um and um you know so a, a christianity that um that can uh preach that um genuine good news not um you know good news if you get it right kind of salvation um and you're very at risk of getting it wrong um it feels that that kind of theology is really important but it again it's very tricky because it's not just um you know about what a theologian might say um but it's embedded in the institution of the church itself you know that kind of distancing hierarchy um so it, it's not a trivial concern um but vital I, I think well i agree i think that kind of message is what appeals to me and um uh, and i i i see i see it as at least implicit um so um yes well that's perhaps a good point to end i mean this is an uplifting vision and one that uh, i think is relevant to not only us, to us individually but collectively um we're called to a transform a transformation and in the orthodox church it's called theosis becoming divine it's 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 so the emphasis much less on on what's wrong and what's wrong with us and uh, separated from god but the, the process of moving into this divinization of humanity and of our, ourselves and our, us collectively then i think it's a truly inspiring vision yes yeah okay well look um thanks for teasing these things out um you know we uh we, we we see things slightly differently but um you know it feels like in that dialogue is a sort of a, a shared yearning um which is this this fuller vision which i i completely i'm completely with you that i think christianity has quite as much as any other great tradition um and i'm glad that we can at least touch it in our conversations and hopefully you know our listeners feel it as well so thank you thank you mark